in God's good providence that we've been studying uh, this. I say we're studying Ezra, but we haven't even approached the book of Ezra or the storyline of Ezra yet. Uh, in the introduction uh, two weeks ago, I said it was going to take two lessons, and now this is our third. But I think it's been by God's providence that this has happened. Um, the mandate of the preacher is not to examine the culture and then devise a sermon that fits whatever we're going through that week. The mandate of the preacher is to preach Christ. And it would be very easy for me to look at the culture and say, oh, what's going on in the news this week? What has CNN promoted? Uh, what is happening in Seattle? What is going on with race riots? And then speak to that. And, and then every week I would just be beholden to whatever was happening in society and preach that message. And isn't it interesting that even in God's sovereignty, we're preaching, or we've been preaching, I've been preaching, we haven't been preaching, but I've been preaching on this section in Jeremiah and the late king's books and moving into Ezra, which fits the society so perfectly. And the encouragement that we have today from God's word, I think, will be very applicational to all the things that we're dealing with. The story that we've been talking about really has mirrored our society. The, the, the latter part of the history of the nation of Judah, we counted down those last five kings, Josiah, Jehoahaz, Jehoiakim, Jehoiachin. You know, no one names their kids after these guys because they're such crummy kings. And then you have Zedekiah. That nation was marked by rebellion and not listening to God, which is exactly what our society has done. Rejected his rule and authority. Derek just read to us, if the foundations be destroyed, what shall the righteous do? Does it seem to you like the foundations of our very society are crumbling? Even the golden rule, love your neighbor as yourself, has been uh, gone away. Uh, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. So what should righteous people do? I mean, how would you answer the question of Psalms 11.3? If we see the foundations of a society crumbling, which was happening in Jeremiah's day and is happening today, what should righteous people do? For starters, we take comfort in the fact that God is our rock. Here's some scriptures that uh, explain that to us, so you don't have to flip to all of them. The Lord is my rock and my fortress, and my deliverer, my God, my rock, in whom I take refuge, Psalm 18, verse 2. Psalm 62, 2, he alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress, I shall not be greatly shaken. And then Psalm 18, 31, in comparison to all other gods and all other securities, who is God but the Lord, and who is a rock except our God? Of course, rock, the image of a rock, presents God as safety and security and strength. The only hope that we have in this life is God. There is no social justice work or political action or protest that will somehow return our nation to dependence upon God. It is only the preaching of his word and the work of the Holy Spirit in the hearts and lives of people who are listening that they will respond and be renewed. Wednesday night we had quite a storm, remember, and, and everything's blown away, and the boys and I, we, when they were little especially, we used to go outside and make sure everything was secure. We just kept saying that. Is it all secure? Right? Is the tarp over the woods secure? And we'd be running around and, and nailing things down. And don't you feel right now a bit of insecurity and a lack of safety, especially as we look at what's happening? We see that common sense, morality, and God-fearing action is almost, as it were, being blown away. People just rejecting that wholeheartedly. So today's Bible lesson is going to focus on what 
believers should do in moments like that. What should we think about? What should we, uh, what should we uh, put our attention on to? And God helps us by walking Jeremiah through that in three specific ways. So turn to 2 Kings chapter 25, and we'll begin with the historical aspect. Now here's the chart we've been working at uh, for the last few weeks, and the stars kind of indicate where the passages go. Remember I said that Jeremiah isn't a book that goes from chapter 1 to 55 all in order. You have to kind of decide through study where those messages go. They're grouped by messages, not by timeline, Jeremiah is. So you review and you look at books and you study and you find out that these different messages were given at these different historical points in the nation of Judah's history. Remember that in 722, the nation of Israel, which is the northern nation of ten tribes, was taken away by Assyria, leaving only the two tribes in the south known as the nation of Judah. And they remained till about 605 BC when the first wave of, uh, of Nebuchadnezzar's armies came in and uh, just prior to that, in Jeremiah 26, God gave a message through Jeremiah that he was eager to restore. If the, the biggest regret of all this is none of this captivity and exile needed to happen. If they would have just repented, God would have restored them. So Nebuchadnezzar came in 605 and destroyed a portion of the nation and took Daniel with him and others. And then between the first and second wave, you have all these different various messages. We've already talked about those. And then he comes again in 597. He replaces Jehoiachin and he sets up Zedekiah as kind of a puppet king. And Jeremiah gives another message, the green star there, a reminder of the promise of blessing. And we talked about it on Wednesday night that the ultimate promise of blessing was that God would raise up a righteous branch, that God would send a Messiah. He would fulfill his promise by giving an ideal king for the nation of Israel who would finally listen to them. And in Isaiah, what was it, Isaiah 11, we went over that Wednesday night, um, when Christ reigns in righteousness, he will put down evildoers, even animals, natures will be changed, and all will be right in the world. We look forward to that day. Well, today we're at 586 B.C., the third wave. This is the final and full destruction of the nation of Judah. It would not exist again. Uh, and in Babylon uh, took them all away, left only the poorest people there. I'm going to explain that in just a minute. So that's where we are in the history, the gold star. We're in the year 586 BC, and that finds us in 2 Kings chapter 25. Now, I was talking that whole time, so give me a chance to get there. You've already got there. 2 Kings 25 is a description of a tragic description of what happens here in these final days. So Zedekiah is the king. He had ruled for 11 years. We're now at uh, 586 B.C. He began his reign in 597. Let's read now what happened. This is 25. Look at, look at the last phrase of chapter 24. Zedekiah rebelled. <laughs> and Nebuchadnezzar is going to say, okay, uh, enough. So in the ninth year, 25-1, in the ninth year of his reign, in the tenth month, on the tenth day of the month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came with all his army against Jerusalem and laid siege to it. Now I want you to imagine, we've been all watching the news, um, and we see things going on, and imagine if you were living in the nation at that time, and there was a news network, and how this information would be reported. I want you to feel the devastation that the nation of Judah would have felt. This isn't just a story that we would... Uh, put up as a flannel graph, or we're just kind of reciting history. This, this is actually happening to people who had uh, turned from God. Verse 2, the city was besieged till the 11th year of King Zedekiah. On the ninth day of the fourth month, 
The famine was so severe in the city that there was no food for the people of the land. The famine had gone on, some say, for 18, perhaps up to two, 18 months to two years. That's how long they had sieged the city. They were running out of food. So a breach, verse 4, was made in the city, and all the men of war fled by night by the way of the gate between the two walls. By the king's garden, the Chaldeans were around the city, and they went in the direction of the Arabah. But the army of the Chaldeans pursued the king, this is Zedekiah, and overtook him in the plains of Jericho, and all his army was scattered from him. They captured the king and brought him up to the king of Babylon at Riblah, and they passed sentence on him. They slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes and put out the eyes of Zedekiah and bound him in chains and took him to Babylon. Now, without looking at all the passages uh, that explain this, Zedekiah uh, became king. This is according to 2 Kings 24, 18. He became king when he was 21 years old. He ruled for 11 years, making him how old at the time of the invasion? Somebody pay attention. How old was he at the time of the invasion? He was 21, at, he was 21 when he became king. He ruled for 11 years. I know this is tough math on a Sunday morning. 32. His sons were slaughtered. How old would a 32-year-old's sons be? Because we kind of read this thing, well, his sons must have been of, of army age. I mean, his sons, what, early teens at the oldest as, as a 32-year-old man? His sons were slaughtered before him. The last thing he saw was the, was the killing of his sons before his eyes were gouged out and he was dragged off to Babylon to serve the rest of his days there. So the tragedy that has befallen Zedekiah was just because he had refused to listen to God. And, he, and God brought the punishment he said he would bring. Now what happened to the nation? Verse 8. In the fifth month, on the seventh day of the month, that was the 19th year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the bodyguard, a servant of the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem. Here comes what's happening to the nation. Verse 9. He burned the house of the Lord. Imagine if we were driving into church today and you had heard the news that the church had burned down and you got here and saw it in rubble. That's what the people are facing. All the houses of a king's house and all the houses of Jerusalem, every great house was burned down. And the army of the Chaldeans, who were the captain of the guard, broke down the walls around Jerusalem. And the rest of the people who were left in the city and the deserters who had deserted to the king of Babylon together with the rest of the multitude. Nebrazadran, however his name is said, the captain of the guard carried into exile, but he left some of the poorest of the land to be vine dressers and plowmen. The pillars of bronze that were in the house of the Lord, the stands, the bronze sea that were in the house of the Lord, the Chaldeans broke in pieces and carried the bronze to Babylon. They took the pots, the shovels, the snuffers, the dishes for incense, and all the vessels of bronze used in the temple, the fire pans and the bowls. Whatever was of gold, the captain of the guard took away. Whatever was of silver as silver. It goes on and on and on and on and on. Just the destruction. The temple burned. The king's house burned. The great houses burned. The walls broken down. The people carried into exile. This is a time of devastation. So where is God the rock? Where is the security, safety, and strength at a time like this? There must have been a remnant of people who still depended on God. We know there was Jeremiah. There must have been a handful of other people who seeing the decay of their society due to the lack of response to the word of God are saying, God, we are your chosen people, where are you? And, and some of us can remember days gone by when pastors and churches were respected and the Lord's Day was honored. And, and even if it wasn't believed, there was, a, there was a certain level of respect for common decency and kindness. And all of that seems to be gone. So where does God draw 
our attention at moments like this? What should we be focused on? Now, there are three different passages that we're going to study that give us where our focus should be. And this is meant to be an encouragement because I think like Jeremiah and like the nation that just experienced this terrible devastation, we are sensing some of that ourselves. So where does God draw our attention? So here's the outline and then we'll walk through it. I'll show you where we're going and then you'll know uh, how we get there. So these are the three things that God is going to focus our attention on. On God as the creator, we're going to look at Jeremiah 32. On God as the giver of a covenant in Jeremiah 31. And then finally, on God's character in Lamentations 3. All of these passages are given, these messages from Jeremiah, are given either right at the moment of the devastation of 586 B.C. or around that time frame. So God is saying, what type of message do my discouraged and devastated people need at a moment like this? Where should they be looking? What should they be trusting in? What should they be thinking about? And so as your pastor, I think these things are the things that we ought to focus on as well. So you know where we're going to go first. Jeremiah chapter 32. All right, let's look there. This is a message that was given at this very moment. In fact, Jeremiah 32 is going to tell us that as we read it. Okay, Jeremiah 32. So let's start with number one, the creator. And this is a very interesting story um, that's going to seem strange at first, and then it's going to make sense to us. Okay, give you just a second. Jeremiah 32, here we are. That the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the tenth year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, which was the eighteenth year of Nebuchadnezzar. At that time, the army of the king of Babylon was besieging Jerusalem. So you see the timing of this message? The timing of this message has happened during that siege when the people are in the city, freaking out, food is running out. What I just read to you is about to happen to them, and they're in that very moment. What does God tell Jeremiah to do? Kind of funny. Uh, let's go on. It it just explains a little bit why Zedekiah is punished. Verse 6. Jeremiah said, The word of the Lord came to me at that very moment. Here's the message God has for his faithful prophet. Behold, uh, forgive me for the names, Behold, Hanamel, the son of Shalom, your uncle, will come to you and say, Buy my field, that is at Anathoth, for the right of redemption by purchase is yours. So Hanamel, my cousin, came in, according to the word of the Lord, and said to me, Buy my field, etc., etc., So I knew this was the word of the Lord, and I bought the field. Now, does this seem like a great time to be investing in real estate in a nation that is being destroyed, right? Your nation is about to fall to the Babylonians, and God says, hey, a guy's going to come to you and propose a real estate offer. I think you should go for it. And the guy does that. Jeremiah says, well, I guess it must have been the word. What kind of faith would it take to buy that field? Right? God has told you to do it, but your eyes are telling you that the nation is being destroyed. He says, go and buy that field. Jeremiah does do that. What is being expressed here is God is saying, I'm not done with this nation. I want you to buy that property, and it's going to prove that you people are going to be back here. That's, that's ultimately what God was doing. Jeremiah didn't understand that. So what do you do when God tells you to do something, and you do it, but you don't understand? What, what would you do at that very moment? Ask it one more time. What would you do when God tells you to do something, you don't understand it, you do it anyway, what would be your very next step? Jeremiah prays. That's a good thing to do. He starts praying. Let's look at his prayer. I'm not reviewing all the, the you know, it goes into very great detail about the money that he weighed out and how he purchased the deed, just explaining how Jeremiah did follow what God had said. In verse 16, after I'd given the deed of purchase to Baruch, 
I prayed. Good thing to do when you're confused and concerned. And here's what our attention is focused on. Ah, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power. Remember what I told you we were talking about? Number one, we're talking about God as the creator. This is what we're drawing our attention to. You have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. You show steadfast love to thousands, but you repay the guilt of fathers to their children after them. Oh, great and mighty God, whose name is the Lord of hosts, great in counsel, mighty indeed, whose eyes are open to the ways of the children of men, rewarding each one according to his ways and according to the fruit of his deeds. You have shown signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, and to this day in Israel and among all mankind, and have made a name for yourself as at this day. The focus of this prayer is on God as creator, but what's the application that Jeremiah makes? He says it, and God affirms it. Look at the passage for me. He, he prays, and he's focusing on God's nature and power as creator, and as Jeremiah is focusing on that truth, he comes to a conclusion, and later in the passage, I didn't read it, God affirms that very conclusion. Does anybody see it? What conclusion does Jeremiah reach based on God's great power, and God even affirms it when he says it later, down in verse number 26, 27. Does anybody see that and want to say it out loud and take a guess? I know you couldn't do math earlier, but maybe this one is there for you. Okay, that's okay, I'll show it to you. In Jeremiah, in, in 32, verse 17, what's the last phrase? Everybody say, what's the last phrase? Nothing is too what? Hard for you. I mean, if you made all this, buying a field and you telling me to do that and restoring our, our nation is nothing. And look what God affirms in verse 27. I think I might have said 26. Maybe that's why it was confusing. I apologize. 27. Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. And here he affirms that very truth. Is anything too hard for me? God isn't asking like he needs Jeremiah's approval. He's stating it in a question very powerfully. No, nothing is too hard for me. In moments of devastation and destruction, when society is crumbling, when, as Derek read, Psalm 11.3, when the foundation are being destroyed, what shall the righteous do? Focus on the powerful God that we worship. And nothing is too hard for him. Remember the context of where Jeremiah is at this moment. Zedekiah hated Jeremiah. Remember last week? Jeremiah, is there a word from the Lord? Well, yes, Zedekiah, there is. Well, what is it? You're on your way to Babylon, pal. Zedekiah gets mad. Well, you're on your way to a muddy pit. He sends him into a cistern with water, then he goes into a cistern with mud, and finally he's in jail, and that's where Jeremiah is right now. He couldn't go out and buy the field. He's in prison. Here he is in prison, nation in disarray, and he says, God, you are the powerful creator, and nothing is too hard for you. We live in relative freedom, and we doubt those very same things. I think I said this already, but the focus of the prayer is that nothing is too hard from God. And the assertion that Jeremiah is making there comes from his knowledge and understanding that God has this creative ability. We may complain and fret and worry when we see what's happening in our society, just as Jeremiah might have. But those who truly trust God, how do they respond? They pray, and how would you characterize Jeremiah's prayer there? Is it a prayer of complaint? 
Is it a prayer of concern, a prayer of worry? What is it? It's a prayer of praise. He's praising God for all these wonderful things. Here's specifically what he's praising him for. His power in creation, verse 17. Besides that, he focuses on his steadfast and loyal love, verse 18. It says, you show steadfast love to us. You are loyal in your love. You are the great and mighty God. You are, verse 18, the Lord of hosts. That means he commands an angelic army. He has, a, he has generals and colonels and soldiers in this angelic army to do whatever he says. Verse 19, he is great in his counsel. He is mighty in his deeds. Verse 19, Jeremiah affirms that he is the omniscient rewarder and repayer of mankind. God sees all we do. Remember in passages that in Thessalonians, God will not forget your labor of love. God, God sees A cup of water given in his name is remembered. God remembers and and also will repay those who do evil. We think, well, people are getting away with stuff here. Psalm 73, we say with Asaph, why are the wicked prospering? God has that all under control, and Jeremiah is realizing that. Jeremiah is basically affirming Zedekiah is going to get his because God sees everything Zedekiah is doing, and Zedekiah got his. He saw his young children slaughtered. Zedekiah is still reaping the judgment as he is probably in hell to this very day. Jeremiah, on the other hand, earthly, punished, uh, a very, very difficult life on this earth, yet God has rewarded him, and certainly he is in heaven with the Lord. He's the omniscient. And the, and the final thing that Jeremiah affirms is that this great act of God, which was always recalled by the nation of Israel, is that he was the one responsible for the exodus. He was the one who took God's people out of the mighty hand of Pharaoh, walked them through the Red Sea, brought them through the wilderness to the land that's flowing with milk and honey. So if God can do all this, remember what's the affirmation? Nothing is too what? Nothing is too hard for God. Nothing is too hard for God. This is where our attention is drawn to in moments like we're facing. I imagine that it would be easy for Jeremiah to think it was all spinning out of God's control. So let's make some applications here before we kind of go on. What financial concern or health battle or wayward child or lost spouse or even crumbling nation is too hard for God? Is there a soul connected to you in your life that you've been praying for for years and years that that person be saved? Is, is the salvation of that soul too hard for God? Everybody can answer. Is that salvation too hard for God? No. Is the building up and success and fruitfulness of this ministry here on this corner where we see locked in to St. Clement, the Roman Catholic hold on this community, or a society that seems to just generally turn their back on God. When we give invitations or tracts for the church, they're ripped up in front of us or the door is slammed or get off my yard. Is, is the building up and growing of this ministry too hard for the church for, for God? Of course not. What does he say in Matthew? I will build my church and the gates of hell will... It is is not the power of God that is in question. It is our own trust and dependence on what God can do that is the problem. It is our doubts and inability to trust. And even if God doesn't save that soul or bring back that wayward child or solve that health battle, God is still powerful enough to do it and sovereign to know what is right and what is wrong. So we praise God for that reality that nothing is too hard for him So how can that affect our prayers? Let me give you four quick things. Uh, How can that affect our prayers during difficult times? What what should we do realizing that God can do all things? Someone has said these four things. 
We can pray lavishly. John 14, 14 says, if, if you ask anything in my name, I'll do it. This is the promise of prayer. If you ask anything in my name, I'll do it. Pray believingly. James 1, 6 says, when you ask God, ask in faith, believing with no doubting. And then the last two, pray boldly, pray persistently. This is the parable in Luke 11 of the man who comes at midnight and needs bread for his family and comes and knocks on the door and it says the guy's going to get up and give it because he's persistent. It's not as if God is a, is a sleeping neighbor and is just wanting to get rid of us, but we have the privilege of coming to God boldly and asking for help. Hebrews 4.16, let us come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and grace to help in time of need. Let us be persistent. You've all heard this before, I'm sure. Uh, Matthew 7, 7, even, even Jess has memorized this verse. Matthew 7, 7. Ask and it shall be given you. Seek and you shall knock and it shall be opened unto you. But you know those verbs, and I know you've heard this before. It's not just ask, seek, and knock. The verbs are, should, be, should read, keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking. Let's pray this way for our needs and our concern and even our nation. Pray that God would do great things and lavishly pour out his grace on us and believe that he wants to do that and be bold and persistent in our prayer. In these difficult times, it is right for us to focus on God as the creator, the mighty and powerful God to whom nothing is too hard. Let's look at the second thing, okay? I hope, that, I hope that's encouraging. One chapter back, Jeremiah 31. I want to talk about covenant covenant. And this is going to be difficult just to get through in a few minutes. Um, something we could talk about for days. Remember, we've been talking about the author of history um, and his wonderful story. He put Adam and Eve in the, in the perfect place, paradise, Garden of Eden, with one prohibition that they broke. They forfeited all that God had planned for them. And it seemed that everything God had planned was lost. But this is all in God's great design to bring about uh, a people that he would buy back for his own glory. And there's a lot of passages to consider that we're not going to turn to. I put those up there in case, you know, we don't have Sunday night church tonight. So in case you want to review this further, uh, passages like Hebrews 8.8 8 and all the verses following that. Luke 22.20, I'm going to reference that. But then 2 Corinthians 3.7-11, this all talks about something called the New Covenant. God has made covenants with his people throughout history. The word covenant is unfamiliar to us, but it is something that was a powerful idea for God's people. And at its very core, covenant just means this. God is making promises to his people. In Genesis 3.15, right away, when our first parents sinned, God made an immediate promise to them in Genesis 3.15. He said that, uh, I will bring someone from the seed of the woman that would crush the head of the snake. It's the first messianic prophecy that God promises. that he's, it, it doesn't use the word covenant there, but he really is making a promise to the people that he's made, that something good is going to come out of this. I'm going to bring about something new. He makes a covenant with Noah in Genesis chapter 9 when he promises never to flood the whole earth again. When we see the rainbow, which has been hijacked by immoral people, but when we see the rainbow, we, we see that God's promise has, he has kept his word. He has never flooded the entire earth again. And then, very importantly, in, Abra in uh, Genesis chapter 12 and Genesis chapter 15, God makes this beautiful covenant with Abraham. 
He chooses this one man of whom he's going to make a great nation. He makes wonderful promises to him. He says, I'm going to multiply your seed like the sand, like the stars. They're going to be, you are going to be so fruitful. This is a, this is a, and then he lives to be 90, 100 years old, and he hasn't had one child, but God's promise is that there's going to be a mighty nation that will come from him. And then he says, and by the way, in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So who in this room is a member of all the families of the earth? Right? Every single person in here. So all of us have the privilege of blessing from that promise that God made to Abraham. What God is really saying is, Abraham, through you, I'm going to bring that Messiah so that all the peoples of the earth would have the opportunity to be reunited with me in covenant. It's great. He reiterates that covenant to David in 2 Samuel 7. When he says, there's going to be a king from your line forever ruling. Now in Jeremiah 31, he says there is something new. So, to, to Adam and Eve, to Abraham, we didn't even mention Noah, we didn't mention Moses, uh, David, he makes all these covenants, and then he comes to Jeremiah, and it might be that the people are thinking, oh, God is going to come, and he's going to, like, re-up that old covenant one more time. And he doesn't do that. He says, that covenant that I made is going to be replaced by something new. I'm going to inaugurate a new covenant with my people, understand this, with my people, the nation of Israel. This is who he's making the covenant with. So you're thinking, well, don't I get to be part of that covenant? Hold on for just a second. It's a covenant to the nation of Israel. And in Jeremiah 31, we have the only place where the words new covenant are mentioned in the Old Testament. Let's look at it here. It's Jeremiah 31, um, all the way down in verse number 31. Okay, 31, 31, easy to remember for you. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. See who he's making with? Jews. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers. That's the Mosaic covenant, the old covenant. You keep this law, you'll be blessed. On the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. Here's here's what the new covenant will contain. I will put my laws within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sins no more. In fact, as you go on, God now reiterates that covenant by announcing himself as the creator again. These things that I'm talking about, creator, covenant, character, they all go together so beautifully that you cannot, you cannot really take one away from the other, but this is where God's drawing his people's attention. He's saying, it is bad now, and it was bad. King gone, king's son's dead, temple burned, city burned, houses burned, everybody gone but poor people. All the... All the uh, Gold and bronze items and silver items from the temple, gone. Doesn't even mention the Ark of the Covenant, probably gone. They're left behind. God says, I'm going to bring in something new. This is what I want you to focus on. I'm going to bring in something new someday, and it's going to be far better than anything I ever did before. Now, the new covenant was to the Jews, and it was clearly fulfilled the night that Jesus was betrayed. God, of course, sent his son to be the testator of this new covenant and when he's with his disciples in the upper room he says to them 
after supper, this is the cup, which is the new covenant of my blood. Drink this, right? Remember this? This is what we celebrate at, at, Lord's, at Lord's Supper time. He's celebrating the Passover. He takes the, he takes the wine and says, this is the, this is the blood of the new covenant. It wasn't really his blood. It was symbolically representing what would happen the next day when Christ would shed his blood and seal the new covenant. The new covenant is a covenant that will not fail, fade. It is sealed by Christ's blood. The cross is what opens the way. And I said, this was a covenant made to the nation of Israel. So where do we fit in all this? The beauty of this is according to Ephesians chapter 3, verses 4 to 6, Gentiles get to be a part of this covenant too. Paul says, I am showing you a mystery. A mystery in the Bible isn't like a detective story. It's something that was not revealed previously, but now is. And Paul says, the thing that wasn't revealed previously, like in Jeremiah 31, it wasn't revealed here, but I am announcing it now, is that the Gentiles can be fellow heirs with the Jews and enjoy this new covenant relationship as long as they are covered by the blood of Christ. Everyone can enjoy inclusion and have a relationship with God through this promise that He makes to us. That's great news. When the, when the world is collapsing, God has announced this covenant with us. What are the distinctives and what are the provisions of this covenant? The passage tells us. I wish we could talk about it a lot longer. He says, first of all, the word would be written on their hearts. The law would be written inside. The law on the old covenant was written where? Stone tablets that Moses brought down that, was, that, that not only were broke when he threw them down, but they broke over and over as the people disobeyed them because it is impossible to externally uh, kind of modify our behavior so that, it, so that it matches up with the law. That's just like creating some sort of behavior modification that, that can't fully keep the law. God says... There will be an indwelling spirit, the word written on their hearts. They will be touched so deeply within that obedience to God's word will come from within, not from without. That's a beautiful thing. Second thing is that God will be personal. This new spirit and new heart, everyone, it says here in the passage, from the greatest to the least will be able to say that God is their God. No one will need to be taught by anybody else for the Holy Spirit will be living within them. There'll be this personal, intimate relationship. In the past, the priest was the one that had a relationship with God on behalf of all the people. The new covenant announced is that every single one of you, from the greatest to the least, from Jessa all the way up to whoever it is that's the oldest in here, can have a relationship with God based on the new covenant. And everyone in between, Jessa could say, if she was a believer, God is my God. The oldest in here could say, God is my God. What a beautiful thing that is. It doesn't have to be a relationship through any other person because the mediator is now Christ and perhaps the greatest of all of the, of the distinctions of the new covenant is that God provides permanent and complete forgiveness. No longer is it having to bring a bull every year. Every year that you've got to trudge to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover and kill that pet, that pet lamb that you have without a blemish to cover the sins for another year. The blood of Jesus Christ, 1 John 1, 7, cleanses us from all sin. All sin. Praise God for that. 
The blessing that is realized at the cross of Calvary, which Jesus Christ himself announced in the upper room to his disciples, this blood is the new covenant. For the forgiveness or for the remission of sins, the new covenant provides the abiding presence of the Holy Spirit, reminds us of God's word, convicts us of sin. He also empowers our obedience. So we become, according to 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10, through the new covenant, we become the treasured possession of God. 1 Peter 9, 10, a people for his own possession. What does John 10, 10 say? Or not John 10, 10, but John 10 itself says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they know me. This intimate relationship and the special treasured possession. God owns us. God bought us. God owns us. God wants us. We have this wonderful relationship with him if we have entered into a relationship by faith. I don't want to take for granted that everybody in this room has done that. Maybe there's somebody in here who is still depending on your works or your merits or your achievements before God. And even though we've heard that message preached over and over again, you still haven't fully given yourself to Jesus Christ and said, I am an unclean, undeserving sinner standing outside of fellowship with you, but because you sent your Son, Jesus Christ, I can be included in this new covenant if I simply ask for cleansing from my sins, and the great news is God will receive you gladly, like the father who looked down the road and saw his son returning. He runs and puts the robe on him and celebrates him. God would celebrate that. Angels in heaven would celebrate that if you would simply confess and repent your sin and find the great blessing that so many of us in here know this. Does the message of the new covenant outshine your temporary concerns today or not? Right? Right? Oh no, what's going to happen to America? Uh, you know, what's, going to, what's going to happen in our society? I don't want to say who cares, because we do care, but the focus should be on this anchor point for your tossed and turmoiled soul. We sing that song a lot. Max says, we sing that song almost every week. Christ the sure and steady anchor. And we're going to sing it again at the end, I think. I don't mean to tease Max, but, but the idea is we do sing a lot because we like it so much. Here's, here's where it comes from, Hebrews 6:19. It is impossible for God to lie. This is actually verse 18 and 19. It is impossible for God to lie. We who have fled for refuge, we just sang that too, how firm a foundation he provides that refuge to whom we have fled. We who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope that is set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. A hope that enters into the holy place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. The sure and steady anchor is that Christ stood under the judgment of God for my sins. You know, I think... I think about going outside when that storm starts whipping up on Wednesday and we're, we're putting the tarps down and we're taking everything inside and uh, you know, Max is bringing his new Jeep in the car so it doesn't get uh, in the garage so it doesn't get hailed on. Um, and we're protecting things that are important to us. We're making things secure. Well, where is the security when the world is whipping around? The anchor point is that Christ, with his own blood, has bought your sin-cursed soul and redeemed you unto God and made you kings and priests and one day we'll reign with him. So, in a sense, who cares what this passing world is doing when we have that awaiting us thanks to the provision of the new covenant? Praise God. Praise God. Let's do the last thing. Let's go to Lamentations chapter 3. 
for our last thing, which the last focus is character. So we have creator, we have covenant, and now we have the character of God. And again, these are so intertwined. We've already talked about some of this. We've already talked about some of this, but let's, let's hit this up and, and finish. Lamentations 3, we know for one main reason. Verses number 22 and 23. Great is your faithfulness. But let's remind ourselves of the context. It's Jeremiah who's writing this. And remember Jeremiah's position. Jeremiah is um, in jail. He sees the devastation of his nation. He sees the rebellion of his people. And he actually begins the passage by saying some pretty tough things about how he feels about God. Let's look at verse number one. The his and the he, by the way, as Jeremiah writes, is God. I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. Remember, his is God. That's the way he feels. He has driven and brought me into darkness without any light. Surely against me he turns his hand again and again the whole day long. He has made my flesh and my skin waste away. He has broken my bones. He has besieged me and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. He has made me dwell in darkness like the dead of long ago. He has walled me about so I cannot escape. He has made my chains heavy. Though I call and cry for help, he shuts out my prayer. He has blocked my way with blocks of stones. He has made my paths crooked. He is a bear lying in wait for me, a lion in hiding. He has turned aside my steps and tore me to pieces. He has made me desolate. He bent his bow and has set me as a target for his arrow. He drove into my kidneys the arrows of his quiver. I have become the laughingstock of all people, the object of their taunts all day long. He has filled me with bitterness. He has sated me with wormwood. He has made my teeth grind on gravel and made me cower in ashes. Here's his conclusion, these last two verses. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say, my endurance has perished. So has my hope from the Lord. He's desperate, isn't he? You feel that? He is desperate. Here's what he says about God. In verses 1 to 6, he feels like God is an enemy. He feels like God is an enemy. He says he is under the rod of God's wrath. In Psalms 2, verse 9, it says God is going to strike the nations with the rod of his wrath. A rod is something you beat someone with. Think about this. In Psalm 23, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Well, the rod comforts because it's beating away the wolves. But it's like Jeremiah says, God has taken the rod that he's usually beating the wolves with and he's beating me with it. This is how Jeremiah feels in this moment. And a lot of us feel that way too during discouraging and difficult times. The situation is very, very bleak. God seems to be turning to Jeremiah and treating him like a foe to the point where physically he is wasting away. He also says in verses 7 to 9 that God is acting to him as a jailer as someone who has fenced him in and is not hearing his cries. It's almost as if Jeremiah is a prisoner in solitary confinement. In verse number uh, 8, it says he calls for help and he's ignored. Like the prisoner down the hallway. Hey, can I get a drink? Hey, can I get some? And he's ignored. He's blocking his way and he shuts out my prayer. God is no longer listening to me, Jeremiah says. In verses 10 and 11, he compares God to a threatening beast, a wild animal a lion and a bear that are stalking him. It says the bear is lying in wait and a lion is hiding. We don't walk around Romeo worried that a panther is going to jump out and attack us. 
You've got to understand in these days, it's, it's much more difficult. Jeremiah may be walking feeling like God is about to pounce on him. When will God's final and fatal attack come? When will the bear finally pounce on me and put me out of my misery? That's why God is stalking him. He says God is like a hunter in verses 12 to 14. He is pulling back his bow. He is shooting into my kidneys. It says he's become the laughingstock, the object of his taunts. I couldn't help but think about like Big Buck Day when they take the deer out to the poles and hang them up and everybody kind of examines the, the uh, the conquered prey. Like Jeremiah maybe feels that way. Like God has hunted me down and now people are mocking me. All day long. And his conclusion in verse 15 to 18 is so desperate that he is bitter and he is hopeless. His peace is gone. He has forgotten what happiness is. Have you ever felt like that? Have you ever gotten to that point? Like it, Even as you watch things that are going on in society today. Maybe it's not the things that are going on in society. It's something that's happening in your family that even you haven't shared with everybody or even we've been praying about. Something that's going on that is a heavy burden to you and you feel like God has turned against you and is no longer on your side. He is like an enemy, a hunter, a jailer, a beast. You feel under his attack. Maybe you felt that way. Overwhelmed. Jeremiah, though, does not end with this is in the context of that feeling that Jeremiah basically says, I forgot something very important. Look at it. Verse 21. This I call to mind. Here's the solution for people who are discouraged and devastated. It's to stop thinking about the devastation and force yourself to call something else to mind. And specifically, it's the character of God that we need to remind ourselves. It's like Jeremiah is basically saying, oh wait, I almost forgot something very important. That God's steadfast and loyal love doesn't cease. That His mercies are new every morning. They do not end. And great is His faithfulness. So I call those things to mind, and therefore, verse 21, I have hope. You might even underline in your Bible, verse 18, my, uh, it says, my hope from the Lord. Basically say, my hope is gone. My hope has perished. And then right away, a couple verses later, he says, I have hope. So what changed his position from hopelessness to hopefulness It was the thinking and dwelling upon the character of God. And so when great is thy faithfulness was first sung at the Moody Church years and years ago, and these people stood up and said, great is thy faithfulness, O God my Father, there is no shadow of turning with thee. When they stood and sang that, they are echoing the words of this prophet who is in jail, who has just previously said, God hates me, he's my enemy, he's a lion, he's a beast, he's a hunter, he's a jailer, but I forgot that in that, he is always faithful and loyal and loving and steadfast and merciful. And it is the switch of focus, it is that switch of focus to the character of God that changes everything. So we must stop focusing on those difficult aspects of our life which don't go away. This didn't change for Jeremiah. He didn't all of a sudden become king of a newfound Israel. He went off to Egypt. He was in prison. I mean, the rest of his life is a disaster as well. But it doesn't change God's faithful 
character. Maybe you're facing something really difficult today and this kind of sounds trite. It's not meant to sound trite. It's truth. This is the bedrock foundation. What can the righteous do? Derek asked us that in Psalm 11.3 when he read the passage. What can the righteous do when the foundations are crumbling? Trust in God our rock. The great creator, the covenant maker, and the wonderful character that he displays to us. Shall we bow our heads to pray? Our Father, we are so thankful this morning for these reminders from this prophet. And I, I imagine there's people who've listened to this message that are hurting in some way today, whether it's from the events of our society or some personal thing they're dealing with. And they feel like those first 18 verses of Jeremiah is like their own autobiography right now. They feel that this is how you're expressing yourself to them. Please, Father, impress upon each one of us, and especially those who are hurting in this way, to be reminded, call this to mind, that you are loving and faithful and loyal. You keep your promises. You do not change. You are ever merciful. As we remain with our heads bowed and eyes closed, I encourage you to take 30 seconds, 40 seconds, to acknowledge and affirm the things we've learned to God in your own silent prayer. <clears throat> Bless us, Lord, as we affirm these truths in song and remind us of this throughout the rest of this day. If there's one here apart from Christ, please help them turn in faith to him today and find these blessings to be true for themselves. In Jesus' name, amen.